words I speak and with the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. A friend of mine occasionally sends me Friday funnies, emails with funny stories in them, so I thought I'd start off this week's sermon with one of them. On the outskirts of a small town, there was a big old pecan tree just inside the cemetery fence. One day, two boys filled up a bucket full of nuts and sat down by the tree out of sight and began dividing the nuts. One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me, said one boy. Several dropped and rolled down towards the fence. Another boy came riding along the road on his bicycle. As he passed, he thought he heard voices from inside the cemetery, so he slowed down to investigate. Sure enough, he heard, One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. And he just knew what it was. So he jumped back on his bike and rode off. Just around the bend, he found an old man with a cane hobbling along. Come here quick, said the boy. You won't believe what I heard. Satan and the Lord are down at the cemetery, dividing up the souls. (laughs) The man said, beat it, kid. Can't you see it's hard for me to walk? When the boy insisted, though, the man hobbled slowly to the cemetery. Standing by the fence, they heard, one for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. The old man whispered, boy, you've been telling me the truth. Let's see if we can see the Lord. Shaking with fear, they peered through the fence, yet were still unable to see anything. The old man and the boy gripped the wrought iron bars of the fence tighter and tighter as they tried to get a glimpse of the Lord. At last they heard, one for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. That's all. Now, let's go get those nuts by the fence and we'll be done. They say the old man had to leave for a good half mile before the kid on the bike passed him. It's <laughs> a good story. I remember those readings from three years ago. It was a fourth Sunday, Team D were on duty, and Hannah Mollison was due to read that first reading we heard from Proverbs. And she came to me before the service and said, do I have to read it? (laughs) And I went, yes, you do. The capable wife, Proverbs 31, 10, 31, she was not happy. Because at one level, well, I don't know, what did you think? How many of you enjoyed hearing it? I thought you were a brave man, Ken, choosing to read that one. (laughs) I think I would have left that one for Helen myself. <laughs> I went to a funeral this week and the granddaughter read that about her grandmother and it was very, very fitting. Just a description of her grandmother. Well, Mihi Reed said that uh, when her mother was being buried, one of her friends read it as uh, she was being lowered into the ground. So, you know, sometimes it can be seen as a, as a sexist reading, but sometimes, well, depends where we're standing, doesn't it? Depends whether we're standing in the cemetery or at the fence, whether what we hear. The truth is that that reading was written 
at a different time from ours and at a different place, a time that was very patriarchal and in a place that is still very patriarchal. The Middle East has not changed a lot from when that reading was written two and a half thousand years ago, maybe three. It was written in a time where men ruled. They were the real people and women were property. They were owned by the men. And in some ways, that perspective comes through in the reading. But from that perspective, I think today's reading from Proverbs is extraordinary. I would say the theme of that reading is, to all you blokes looking for wives, be wise in your choice of a wife. Don't be fooled by beauty or charm. Look instead for someone who fears the Lord. Now, if you were wealthy and you could have a number of wives, and some of them did, Solomon had truckloads of wives and concubines, well, often they're only looking for one thing, their ability in bed. There's a story of Esther also in the Bible where the king of Babylon tried out a different woman each night for a year. And at the end of that, he chose the one he liked the best for his wife. It was only after one thing. But this writer said you should be looking for something else. So what does someone who fears the Lord look like? Well, it's seen in the following qualities. Somebody who is not self-centered, who is trustworthy, who is hardworking, who is great at multitasking, runs a good household, looks after everyone in the household, runs the farm, and makes clothes and runs a business. She is a merchant on top of all of that. Somebody who plans ahead. Somebody who is generous, giving to the poor and the needy. Not only concerned about her family, not only concerned about her household, but everyone in her community. Somebody who is wise and somebody who is happy. Now, we need to remember that this was written at a time when women were property. They were owned. And a lot of the rules around uh, adultery and all those kind of things were actually not issues about marriage. They were issues of property rights. You were interfering with somebody else's property, devaluing that property. So I'm read in that light, a lot of what we heard today actually is very countercultural. Because, well, that's a very able, strong woman, isn't it, who can do all of those things. And at the end, she is given her share. And to get your share, you have to be a person. It's a very different way of seeing what a wife is all about. And I wonder what such a woman would look like today. And who those women are. I wonder if times have changed that much. We might like to pretend they have, but actually our media spend a lot of time talking about so-called celebrities. They're the people we should look up to. Hollywood actresses and singers and all sorts of things. But I wonder how they measure up to this list. And so just as we were offered, a, just as those who were originally hearing this were offered a different way of measuring the qualities of, good, of a good woman, 
So this offers us a very different list of qualities for us today. Who are the women that we should be admiring, looking up to, paying attention to? The same pushing to make us look at the world differently is happening in the, with the disciples in the story as well. Jesus was talking about one thing and the disciples were at the fence, not understanding a word he had said and like the man and the boy in the story, too afraid to ask because nothing Jesus was saying made any sense to them. Nothing he was talking about sounded like anything they were hoping for or expecting. See, they knew that God was on the side of winners, that God is all-powerful, and that those nearest to God will be rewarded with honour and power and greatness. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking to be on the winning side and the people rewarded with honour and power and greatness. And so they were on this journey to get out for them. What, what was in it for them? Honour and power and greatness. That's what they thought this was all about. And Jesus was talking about dying. Well, you don't get a lot of honour and power and greatness out of dying, do you? The people of status, honour and power were the ones that were valued the most. They were the ones that were understood to be the closest to God. Which, you know, is pretty much like today. With our worship of celebrities and the wealthy. And even some Christian ministers aspiring to be amongst the wealthy. And living the life of the wealthy. And so the disciples were struggling to hear what Jesus was teaching about. Because he was teaching about another way. He was in the cemetery. They were at the fence. And I'm not sure that we get it either, really. A lot of our imagery is still about God all-powerful. We have this window here. Jesus, post-resurrection. Dressed up in great clothes, the clothes of the wealthy, the powerful. A lot of our music, a lot of our hymns is about God all powerful. And a lot of our Christian art depicts, like that does, Jesus, the Holy Family, the disciples, in the clothes and the settings of the wealthy and the powerful. Because to depict them amongst the poor, well, you could get burnt at the stake for that kind of carry-on. Because really, the most important people were still the wealthy and the powerful, and they were still the ones closest to God. And that still shapes our understanding. But the model that Jesus was presenting, the model of God that he kept talking about and living out, was very different. He kept honouring the poor, not the powerful. In the Beatitudes, I said a few years ago, that one of the ways we can translate the word blessed be is honoured. That Jesus is actually saying, these people are the people of great honour. Not the rich, not the powerful, not the high priests. These people, blessed be the poor, they are the people of greatest honour. 
It was turning things on their heads. And then there's the ultimate expression of Jesus dying on the cross. Where Jesus says, this is the way of God. And this is where you find God. In this ultimate expression of vulnerability and powerlessness. Not all powerful, but powerlessness. So we have these two windows in our church. And if I was to ask you which one depicts God, most of you, I would say, would go for that one. The resurrection window. But actually, if we were listening to Jesus, it should be that one. With Henny, the servant, risking her own life to take water to dying British soldiers. Her enemies, the very people who had been trying to kill her a few hours earlier. That's the one that models God as Jesus talked about, as Jesus lived it, as Jesus died it. It's kind of nice we have both windows in our church, really, holding both those images before us. So in this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, well, they know they're not getting it, and they know that they are still hooked into the we should be on the side of the winners and the winners are the ones with the most power and status and honour. And so Jesus does something which the prophets do all the time. He gives them an image, a living image. So we have Isaiah, for example, who walked around for three years naked to show the people of Israel what would happen if they kept making treaties with the king of Egypt. They would end up in exile wandering around naked as slaves. It was a vivid image. Jesus' image is almost a star. He picks up a child and places that child in their midst and he says a really interesting thing that most of the time we don't pay any attention to. Jesus said, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Now what's really interesting is how we hear that. I was really interested in the number of commentaries that talked about how God will receive those who receive the child. But actually, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, God will receive those who receive the child. Jesus said, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Or to put it a lot more simply, when you welcome a child, you welcome God. When we welcome a child in our midst, we welcome God. Now that was a pretty radical thing, because well, children weren't really people yet. They needed to kind of grow up a bit. And when they went through what the bar mitzvah and all that kind of stuff, then they became a real person. And then you could pay attention to them. But up to that point... They were just kind of proto-humans, really. You might love them, but they weren't to be taken seriously. And they certainly weren't where you would look for God. And the same is true for us. I mean, I go to debates about whether we should fund children's ministry, and the debate is, well, you know, maybe if we have children here, we can get their parents to come to church. Like the parents are really the important ones 
and the children are the vehicle by which we will get there. Or, oh, let's not worry about the children, let's just focus on the 50 and 60 year olds because that's where we're going to grow our church. But actually that's not what Jesus talked about. Jesus said, when we welcome a child, we welcome God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the child. Those pesky children who make all that noise in the middle of our nice orderly service. Run around playing with their cars. Those children. When we welcome them, we welcome God. God interrupting our nice, safe, orderly service where we know exactly what's going to happen next, where we can hear everything and know our place and all of that. Sitting in our pews, behaving well, because that's what we do. These children that might run around not behaving well, because maybe God isn't behaving well either, and it's just stirring us up. When we welcome children, we welcome God. It's quite a big concept, isn't it? Well, at the 8 o'clock service, we stopped there because they're not very good at talking to each other, but we're at the 9.30 service. <laughs> so, where are we then? Are we with the old man and the boy at the fence, hearing these words but not really understanding them, running away from them because they sound a bit frightening? Or are we willing to go into the cemetery? Have a talk to your friends who are sitting near you. What do we do with this? Whoever welcomes one child such as this welcomes me and not just me but the one who sent me how do we live that out as as the people of God in this place have a little conversation with those who are near you